the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Planted with Sarah Pyan. I'm Sarah Pyan, your host, and this is episode five. Today we are going to be discussing SB 34, which just recently passed in California, um, bringing compassionate giving back to cannabis for our most critically ill patients. I'm really excited today to have as my guest, Ann Kelson. Ann is a business, cannabis business law attorney based in the Bay Area. Um, she and many other colleagues in the movement um, lobbied for compassionate care regulation and legalization over the last two years, which ultimately contributed to SB 34, the Dennis Perone and Brownie Mary Act, and advises cannabis businesses across the licensed supply chain on regulatory compliance, employment law, intellectual property, and outside general counsel services, and is the co-chair of the International Cannabis Bar Association's Appalachian Rights Subcommittee and advises small farmers on this subject. She works at Kelson Law Group and McAllister Garfield, a multi-state law firm. Um, I'm really excited to have Anne here today because she's done so much pro bono work on behalf of our patients, along with other great work in our field. Um, she and I worked together for the past two years um, much, she put much more work into it than I did. <laughs> um, but just to make sure that we're able to get medicine to people who need it. One of the things that we were discussing today before we started recording was the fact that this is basically a bill that's based on a public health emergency, and it took us two years to get it to pass. Prior to legalization, when we were in Prop 215, the basis of Prop 215 and the legalization of cannabis for medical use uh, was about the fact that we have a lot of really sick people that need help. Um, and cannabis isn't covered by insurance. One of the one of the many reasons that the medical viability of cannabis has been highlighted is because in our Bay Area, we were one of the epicenters of the AIDS crisis. And now we're still dealing with the opioid crisis, crisis with our veterans and the high suicide rates. People are getting cancer more than ever before. And when you're critically ill, and I've said this before, I'll say it again, it's really hard to stay afloat. Um, it's, it's a great financial burden. And in this day and age where we're dealing with a, a very, how would you say, well, the middle class is almost gone. We're dealing with the very rich and the very poor, and you see that illustrated quite well in the area in which we live. There, are The homeless populations are growing. Uh, people are getting sicker. Our, um, our economy is, is not doing as well as it should be, and our environment is suffering, and we're having to work really hard to protect it more than ever before, which is also reflecting in our health. Um, so we have a lot of things to discuss and unpack today, and thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Sarah. It's such an honor, and um, uh, there's definitely a lot to talk about, and I, I look forward to hearing more You know, as we discuss the bill and the work leading up to the bill, just how you envision uh, compassionate care continuing on in the near and present future. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I'm, well, you and I could nerd out about this <laughs> all day. That's right. <laughs> Prior to legalization, we were able to give cannabis to people in need. 
there was no repercussions. There was no taxation. Um, there were there were several programs that were running some for twenty plus years. Um, my program at the apothecarium was called Medbox, and we would have it where patients would fill out surveys indicating. Um, you know, how they were doing physically, financially, what their experience was with cannabis, what symptoms they were looking to treat. And I would create every two weeks boxes that were actually geared around their needs. And then they would actually report back to me on how it affected their bodies. So we'd be able to adjust it to give them the most relief that they needed. They didn't need to take financial on the financial burden of experimenting with expensive product to get their needs met. Um, and it also was very educational for us because what they reported back with helped us be able to help other patients as well um, because we see patterns with how the human body metabolizes cannabis and we're all really different. So there are, there are varied patterns. Um, in addition to that, it gave our, well, dispensary owners that would take part in this or uh, product companies, it also gave them the peace of mind knowing that they were reaching out to their community and helping beyond the consumer. And that was a lot of what 215 was based on, which was supporting our most critically ill, holding space for our community, not only through providing product, but also providing programming for mental health and other issues that our patients were dealing with every day. And with legalization, it just seemed like we were just looking at the commodification of cannabis straight up without looking at the history of it, and that all of us have been done on the backs of our most critically ill. It's so true. You know, I think some people characterize it as a legislative oversight. And, you know, looking back, I don't know how productive it is to assess it in terms of, you know, whether this was a full, you know, an intentional disregard of, of some of the basic rights enshrined in the first set of laws, um, you know, for our most needy and, and for the people that are, you know, suffering um, so much uh, from different conditions here in California. But, you know, just hearing you describe even how your program used to be and thinking about where we are now, you know, there's the landscape has shifted significantly. And and the first thing I think, again, going back to intention is the focus, you know, the way that the legal framework is set up now almost anything within the supply chain, any movement is a, a taxable event, so to speak. And, um, you know, in creating these new protections and reinforcing, that's how I'd like to see it, some of the pre-existing protections that needed to be further reinforced, um, you can see that, you know, it, tax is still kind of dictating everything. And so with this current law, um, cannabis donations are exempt from excise tax. And we got that clarification actually through the legislative process, even before this bill became a law. Um, the CDTFA actually came out and, and took a position over time with a lot of people, you know, writing and showing up at public hearings and talking about what a, you know, public health crisis this was having to tax cannabis donations. But I think now that we're in this new place um, where we have a little bit more relief, I'm starting to think about, you know, just the things you were talking about, which is, you know, what are compassionate care donations going to look like and how will they be most effective? And I think, you know, without skipping ahead too much, one thing that's just the elephant in the room is the fact that, you know, the cannabis industry is having a very difficult rollout for a variety of reasons. We may even be in the middle of a recession, so to speak. And so, you know, 
for the long term future, maybe not the immediate future, I'd love to see a system or conditions in place where your patients in a new program could consistently um, source medication or source their cannabis and be able to source cannabis that's effective for them like you were doing in the past. And I wonder, too, in this immediate future, whether you know, what's going to be available for patients is really, or for um, compassionate care donations is really going to be just by chance and up to the whim of, you know, commercial operators when they have, for example, a surplus or something that goes wrong. And, um, you know, the, the margins are just so unforgiving in some ways right now that it's, it's really hard even to predict how much of a consistent amount will be able to be designated for cannabis donations. Um, what a huge mouthful, Sarah. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, that's great. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on with that. And I also wonder, in the past, it was a lot of our our smaller cultivators and smaller businesses that were really supportive of the Compassion programs because they were just more down to earth in many ways. There, there are some large organizations that do some great things too, but we always got the most positive response from smaller operators. And now we're looking at where, you know, we've lost a lot of them. Um, and also there's just the mindfulness around the fact that we, the ones that exist, we want them to thrive. So though we would really, I would enthusiastically accept donations from my program from the smaller providers. I also am very cognizant of the fact that we want to support them so that they can exist. Right. Yeah. And it's so much of a chicken and the egg thing. I mean, I, I think rewinding the process as well, looking back at the last two years where, you know, we, we went through two legislative cycles and patients really not being able to access consistently the donations they were able to before. And in some instances, I don't know about your patients entirely, Sarah, but with some other compassionate care programs, you know, we have patients that have either gone unaccounted for their symptoms have worsened. And in some, you know, in some more extreme cases, you know, we've had patients pass. And um, so, you know, I, I don't know, how much this law will immediately interject or inject, um, you know, consistency or the ability for people to, to source their donations again. But, um, you know, we're definitely looking at a, at a, a time where there are a lot of constraints, even though we've had this, this victory, so to speak. And to me, it's less than clear how much, you know, in the wake of these challenges, folks will be able to, seek out and, and, you know, consistently, like I said before, um, access those donations, even with, you know, operators that have that as a North star, have some kind of semblance of commitment to providing those donations. Yeah, that, that is something that I think between now and March, we're, we're going to find out what that's going to look like. Uh, One, one thing you're right. But for me, I've, when I was just going through my list of people who are on my compassion program after it passed, cause I was, I was trying to figure out who would be coming back um, and who would not. Uh, we lost a lot of patients. And I think one of the things that was really can be hard for people to understand who aren't familiar with medical cannabis. Um, I think one of the things that people, you know, when they're talking about giving away cannabis and diversion, you know, that was, I think that's always been on people's mind. And I think a lot of that has to do with um, wondering what the legitimacy of using it 
for symptom management to helping, you know, when you're sick. And I understand that to a certain extent because you, you have to be, you have to experience it yourself or like us be immersed. I had both, mm-hmm. you know, because um, prior to getting sick, um, when I had cancer, I didn't, I understood that, I understood how medical cannabis came into play uh, when we dealt with the AIDS crisis. I understood that people who were sick with cancer, that they were smoking to help with nausea and getting them eating again. Um, but I didn't understand why other people were using it. And it was kind of like that joke that people say, they take a puff, they look at you and they jokingly, they wink and they say, oh, it's for my glaucoma, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so there's a lot of education that needs to happen. And it's really, I, I felt like the times that we were up in Sacramento and like testifying, that it was really hard to get people to understand that people were actually dying because they weren't having access to their cannabis. Um, I'd had a, a patient a few years ago, and actually this was one that I brought up when we were in Sacramento, mm-hmm. um, that she had come in with endometrial cancer mm. and was in a lot of pain, and she was just looking for symptom management, and her disposable income per day was $20. And at that time, like, she, and she didn't want to get high, she just wanted to have relief, so we looked at concentrates. Right. And we did um, an 18 to 1 ratio CBD to THC concentrate that came in half gram syringes. And for those of you listening, a half gram syringe is a very small amount. Um, but they ran for $55 before tax. And so for her, that was a lot of money. So we parsed that out so that it would last her a week. And two weeks later, she came back to see me. I wasn't sure how it was going to help her, um, but she was standing upright, Mm -hmm. and she was feeling a lot better. Fast forward to three months later, and and I failed to mention in the beginning of the story that she was not using chemotherapy because of uh, issues with her heart. Hmm. So her doctor, three months later, said, I don't know what you're doing, but keep doing it because for the first time in two years, you're looking really good. Right. You know, and, and that wasn't our intent. The intent was just to help her, you know, with pain. And really, it's up to the patient to monitor what they're using and the effects because, you know, we're not healthcare providers. All we can do is. In some ways, it's almost like being like a cannabis doula. You know, it's like, well, these are some of the effects that you might expect. I'm going to set you up with the tools for success so that you can figure out for yourself what's working with your body and what isn't. Um, And then fast forward to a year later, she came to me and said, guess what? My doctor said, how about if we only see each other once a year? And for those of us who have gone through cancer or have loved ones, we know that that's a really good sign because... Normally, there's more close monitoring if you have cancer, and she was stabilizing, um, but she had issues, you know, with other compassion programs that she had worked with about the regularity of getting her medicine and what it was, because a lot of times the programs are only able to give what they have. I mean, that's really all you can do. Um, and when the compassion programs ended and she didn't have access to her oil anymore, her, her cancer, she had a recurrence, and she, she died a little over a year ago. You know, when we were told that we were no longer going to be able to have the compassion programs and we liquidated them, um, having to tell my patients that there were a lot of tears, um, 
the one bright spot was to be able to tell them you haven't been forgotten. We're, we're actively fighting for you. You may not be hearing about it, but we are thinking about you. You are on our lips when we are in Sacramento. So though we're waiting to see what this is all going to look like, it was, it was an immense joy for me to be able to look into one of my oldest patients' faces and be like, we, it passed. You are not forgotten. We're, we're working on it. I don't know what this is going to look like. And we're trying. Yeah, I think kind of the reframe is huge victory, right? We've seen so many cannabis bills come to Sacramento and and die in Sacramento, unfortunately. But this one, you know, um, after this, this second cycle, you know, was was able to secure a signature, um, which is, you know, profound in so many ways, since, you know, the last cycle of the bill, you know, was successful. It's just it was Governor Brown's veto. But I think, you know, going back to the cost of it all. um, Yeah, I'm aware particularly for patients, you know, that have wasting syndrome and related conditions that, you know, in the interim patients, like the one you were just describing, you know, were basically in really precarious conditions having to choose between food or cannabis. And then if you're in the chicken and the egg scenario, it's like, you know, folks need to be able to access cannabis just to, you know, spark their appetite so that they can eat. So, you know, in that, in that situation, it, it's... It's just a lose-lose, and, and hopefully, as, as you pointed out, we'll start to see the donations start to move again. But there still is that you know, issue of even back in 2015, um, when there were more plentiful donations and there was probably a lot more abundance in general in the field and in this space, you know, being able to consistently source quality um, you know, medical cannabis is its own issue. And um, so I think it's going to take a long-term commitment for sure from programs. And, you know, at the end of the day, there are dictates that are much larger than even this bill can fully address. I mean, I think, again, we're we're in a slowdown or a contraction period right now. And there definitely are many companies that have already had to announce layoffs and, you know, reduction in force and, you know, cutting down on different initiatives. And I I hope in the face of that, we can still see some... um, commitment to be able to source and um, stand by compassion in a meaningful way. And um, perhaps that's actually, you know, a measure of success that we can look at in the future. You know, how much are companies able to consistently donate and under what conditions and, you know, maybe keep keep the whole process open to be, um, you know, rejiggered or at least recalibrated given that we know that there's a lot more than just patients in need and you know occasional conditions where people can donate i'd really like to see with all of the education programs that are starting to take flight um if there's any sort of growing or making of products that's being done that they'd be tested and if they're viable that they'd be donated to compassion programs well actually to that end i heard something really great um in between you know when we've been talking and that is that the last hall of flowers apparently they've been able to take a bunch of the leftover samples that you know were unclaimed or were not used for that event and um somehow be able to get those to a compassion program and that's a huge victory because you know the this is the Hall of Flowers event that happened this last fall, I think in September, but the the event before in, in the early spring of this year, you know, there was just a, t- a, a ton of different samples that were available um, for 
attendees of that event that had to be destroyed based on how the special event was set up and, and some of the other regulations that govern it. And, um, so I think, you know, that's one win or one, you know, instance where people got proactively behind something and said, look, there's going to be a lot of, you know, tested, safe, accounted for cannabis that's, you know, gone through the supply chain. You know, why should it not at the end of the day be able to get to patients? But, you know, to go back to one of the other you know points that you made about diversion, we're looking at right now a lot of distributors and retailers in the state of California having their their licenses suspended because the BCC and some other um, agencies made it so that there was a deadline of October 31st where as a licensed business you needed to complete your metric training and for the businesses that weren't able to complete me- metric training for the track and trace system they are now in suspension and will not be able to use their license or to move product until that training has been completed so that's actually a new event that's happening right now that's definitely affecting the industry and you know I guess in real time right now if a business wanted to donate um, you know you have to keep very um, comprehensive records of it and account for um, the cultivation tax for example if it hasn't been designated for compassion before it goes to um, distribution but more importantly cannabis that goes through the license supply chain right now is not going to be easily diverted um, in the sense that metric is now a requirement and track and trace is now up and you know we're looking at I think sometime in this calendar or within the next calendar year, some kind of special category being created for compassionate care donations within the metric system. Mm -hmm. So while it's kind of been this like policy concern or maybe even a theoretical concern, I think the reality is that it's going to be awfully hard for licensed businesses to divert instead of donate. Yeah. I think that I really believe that the fear around diversion is a lasting effect of the stigma of the past few decades around cannabis. Um, It's kind of like along the lines of, I taught a class the other day and I was like, first thing you need to know is nobody is giving cannabis treats to your kids to get them high on (laughs) Halloween. It's too expensive. (laughs) Nobody's giving away their stash. You know, um, and metric is is a challenge. I know people have been really challenged by the training and how it works. you know, I, it, from a dispensary level, it's like when you have product, but your your system won't let you see it. You can't sell it. <laughs> you know, it's 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 a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I know that we're going to be ironing it all out, but um, and it will come into play with compassion. But it's it's just the whole thing can be rather clunky. Yeah, and I where we're at exactly right now in terms of metric compliance and track and trace, and then now integrating this new law that comes into effect next year, you know, it will be very interesting to see um, just how much people donate and, and, you know, whether or not there are any unanticipated issues, but I'm just really proud that we have this option available. And I, I really do hope that over time we do see some of the larger players or, you know, those small businesses too, that are really committed to, um, to make a continued commitment to compassion because it is, so needed it is and and I, there's the additional hardship to which okay so I, I say hardship but it's it's also a, it's it's a good thing and it's an expensive thing but there are the new um there are the new requirements around testing and those tests are running five thousand dollars a test and granted we want to make sure that everything is safe before it goes on the floor it's, it's essential that testing does happen 
and that's also reflected in prices. So when we're getting our critically ill patients on fixed incomes coming in and they're noticing that something that they have been purchasing for weeks on end has gone up two to three dollars, it's really, really impactful. And even ever since legalization, you know, a lot of people said, well, I'm going to go back to my guy and get whatever, you know. And I always say to them, well, you need to do what you need to do to get, you know, your relief. But the one thing that we really want to remember, too, is that though there have been no deaths from cannabis, there have been deaths from contaminated product, especially with compromised immune systems. And so the testing is essential, um, but the pricing is making it so that we're putting people in a really difficult position so that they're going to the illicit market. And granted, I'm sure there are people who are in the illicit market that are meticulous with their growing and their preparation of their products, but there are also people who are not. So we're creating another public health crisis by making cannabis in the legal industry um, unattainable due to price. Definitely. And I think that even, you know, there were there have been critics, I think, throughout the two legislative cycles around this bill that have said, oh, well, you know, cannabis is so expensive and the taxes and, you know, is this really needed and questioning whether or not people can be able to make donations or any any aspect of the viability. And I think that one point that we can continue to um, focus on is that people in California with major medical conditions need to be able to access tested cannabis. It is expensive. The tests aren't perfect. The system is not perfect, but it is still the safest way short from cultivating it yourself to be able to say that, you know, this product is safe. And for those that have compromised immune systems and, you know, ongoing um, health conditions, all the more, you know, they need to be able to consistently source their medicine from somewhere where they know for a fact that it's not going to contain some of these really harmful compounds. Um, It's a, I, I think if we had to sum it up in some other way, it's, you know, to say this is a victory, but, you know, many, many other variables to account for beyond the patients and beyond even, you know, the desire to want to be able to help them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, I look forward to continued cooperation from our lawmakers, and I hope particularly those that weren't originally open to um, this bill um, but we're swayed by some of the veterans and some of the other folks who are lobbying in Sacramento will continue to, you know, keep this issue on their radar when they're looking at other cannabis bills. Because at the end of the day, you know, this population is is still going to be or these populations will still be the most vulnerable populations in California. And if the system isn't working for the average Californian, it's not working for, you know, for for the traditional patients that the original set of laws were designed for back in the Prop 215 era. Yeah, and I have to say that in my compassion program, I had a very large indigent population that I was serving because we have a lot of critically ill people who are driven to the streets because they can't afford places. And that's where I'm really glad that we were able to get the language in that they were because they were really wanting everyone to pay for that medical card to get access and all all of the advocates and activists 
who work towards just having it be a medical recommendation. And there were a lot of other reasons that we chose to do that too, right, Anne? Yeah, I think that the the medical card, the county medical card, really um, imposed a handful of challenges that, you know, depending on your situation, just it, it was not a workable um, possibility. You know, in some counties there were... Uh, waiting times of you know three months or longer to get the card, plus the requirement that you pay a hundred or so dollars to get the card, and and you know th- these patients that we're talking about sometimes are on fixed incomes. They mm-hmm. may have social workers. They may not even be able to easily make the appointment that they've set, much less afford the card. And so you know having that obstacle be removed is significant, and even more so for the veteran population. I think it posed an additional um, issue of you know, going on a registry and and potentially having to forego your right to have a firearm. And, you know, while that might not be an issue for, you know, some of us, it's it's definitely a significant one for the veteran population. And so I think keeping the barrier low there and keeping it to be a physician's recommendation was the right move. Um, It was certainly a tough thing, you know, that was hard fought. But you know, I also want to point out here that, you know, I've been interviewed by certain journalists and um, other folks, you know, along the way. And, and there seems to still be this idea that you can walk into a dispensary and easily get a donation right now. And that's just not the case. And it's not because of whether or not there's a, a county medical card, for example. It, some of it is just the basic dictates we're talking about in terms of licensed businesses being able to donate in the first instance and to leverage that. And number two, you know, more than likely a retailer like, you know, your own program that you had, you know, is accounting for things like the patient population. You're required to keep records. You're required to keep seven years of those records. You know, you're required to have criterion um for these compassionate care uh, programs whereby, you know, if a member is somehow caught, um, you know, not uh, maintaining the the rules of your program, diverting or, you know, just dishonesty or whatever, that you will not be able to maintain them as a patient. So it's not it's not as exploitable as people think. And it's certainly not like there's this overabundance of cannabis donation. I'd love it if that were the case, but that's just not where we are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I know, like when I was talking to people about getting a card before like in San Francisco if you're a Medi-Cal or Medicare you can get the card for 50 but that's still a lot if you are on a fixed income and the fact that you had to actually physically go down to the Department of Public Health on certain days and certain hours of that day to apply and then you'd have to go back to pick it up and I just remember explaining this to a patient and she's you know, she has a walker and she's looking at me like, you know what an effort it is for me to get out of the house and run my errands and take care of things, even just to go to the doctor to get the recommendation is a hardship. Yeah. You know, and and I'm just so glad that all of the activists were able to impress that upon our lawmakers because I think it's really hard when you see things through. There's a lens of privilege when you're able-bodied. For sure. And, and, you know, I think the other thing, too, that we need to think about is that in the midst of this rough transition, very rough transition, you know, there 
is a state-mandated nonprofits feasibility study, and it was postponed, you know, from 2019 to 2020. And I've heard that, you know, the state agencies have reached out to compassionate care programs and others, you know, for feedback and for information. But I think that that's also going to be a long-term issue. Is there a model that could be created that would be like a nonprofit license? And if so, what would that look like? Because if we start to look at licensing and all the things that we've seen in the last two years around licensing, the different challenges, the high fees, you know, the requirements that you have um, a certain level of security, even just getting your the real estate, getting the space for a licensed premises and, you know, being able to maintain it in compliance and be able to access the help that you may need from, you know, various professionals in order to get to that place in the first instance, I think is incredibly comprehensive. And, you know, I know that, for example, down in Santa Cruz, the um, WAM, the Women's, the Women and Men's Alliance for Medical Marijuana, one of the oldest um, compassionate care programs, you know, is definitely in the midst of trying to figure that out for themselves in terms of how they are able to operate with a license in the license supply chain and still be able to maintain significant aspects of their nonprofit program from yeah. the past. Well, and I think especially with the fact that we still aren't federally legal, that's very impactful as well. And I wonder how that's going to change things when that eventually does change on the federal level, because it, it is going to happen. Um, and I know, like, sometimes people mention, oh, well, you know, it probably depends who's in office. Yes, and cannabis is largely, it, and more and more every day, becoming bipartisan. It's not It's not a bunch of liberal hippie, hippies running around, you know, doing this stuff. I mean, because, and I think especially because people are looking at it as a significant industry creating jobs and money and helping programs that more people are jumping in feet first. Um, so, you know, I think that that's going to change a lot of things. I also think what's going to change a lot of things, too, is um, just, you know, when people come in and they complain about the laws or the packaging or the prices. And one of the things that I always mention is this is your call to action. Because what we're looking at now is a normalization of a practice in an industry. People use cannabis from all walks of life. And these are people who are functioning daily and upstanding members of our society. And it's all walks of life. Because if you spend an afternoon in my waiting room, you would see everybody and their mother there, you know. And so what we need to really impress upon our lawmakers is that not only do we use cannabis, not only do we care about the state of the industry and the policies, but we vote. And we vote often. For sure. I, that's definitely an important piece for, I think, the whole community and industry, uh, is that in order to create and sustain a much more workable, coherent regime, we need to have operators run for office. We need to have business owners um, actively, you know, campaigning and contributing, um, you know, for those lawmakers that are supporting coherent cannabis regulations and, and laws here in California. That's its own minefield, I think, to some degree. Um, and, you know, 
one thing I'm excited about is just what bearing this is going to have for other states. Because I know in Colorado and in Washington, unfortunately, where there were some compassionate care programs, those programs fell by the wayside when they had um, legalization for you know their adult and recreational markets. And hopefully, th- this may be you know um, some kind of you know stimulus or impetus for for those states to look back and to see if there's a way to recreate or um, to support the emergence of compassionate care in the commercial market. And also, you know, for states that are still medical to look at this, at these rights and to look at, you know, some, the, to look at some ability to protect these programs and these patients if, and when they decide to move into the adult market. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's definitely something that, I'm excited about, I think, you know, another thing to, to keep in mind as well is, um, uh, just that, you know, the ultimate goal, like when you're talking about like unscheduling or, um, you know, legalization on the federal level, I would love to see a time. I know we've talked about this before where cannabis donations or cannabis in general is covered by health insurance. I know that in some, um, instances in Canada it is. And so let that also be another goal that, yeah, that's actually something um, on the episode with Art Agnos that we talked about because he thinks it's time, especially because we have, you know, a, a lot of people will say, oh, seniors are the largest growing population. You just in cannabis. Well, no, seniors are the largest growing or the, the population that they're starting to outwardly talk about their cannabis use, which gets their peers interested and involved, too. Um, but it also is, it, it calls to a need, especially with the baby boomers getting older, that we need to be having this coverage. Um, and one of the things that I think California almost did, and when we're talking about Colorado or Washington, they did, is we're forgetting that legalizing cannabis doesn't make the medical needs go away. And it doesn't make the cannabis any more accessible or affordable. <laughs> no, it definitely uh, doesn't. Yeah. It definitely doesn't. And actually talking about that, you want to do some breakdown on taxes? You want to talk about that? Sure. Right. So that's something we kind of briefly spoke about. So the SB 34 does not create an outright tax amnesty for cannabis donations, compassionate care donations. What it does is the excise tax is not supposed to be applied formally to any compassionate care donations. But on top of that, if what is going to be donated is designated for donation before it goes to distribution, then the cultivation tax is also alleviated. If, for example, a distributor at some point or a retailer decides that they want to donate, the cultivation tax that was already paid forward is not retrievable, so to speak. We were told in the in the legislative process when these discussions came up that it really resource wise is not feasible for the agency to be able to somehow track that back or create a tax rebate. So I think that's kind of like the next step. A lot of people talk about is creating a more robust system for tax rebates or tax credits if it's not done at cultivation. Because really, at the end of the day, I know you have a lot more experience with this. Um, folks decide to donate cannabis for a variety of different reasons. And now we have all these overlays with testing and the like. And, you know, as long as it's gone through track and trace, gone through the testing and, you know, is suitable, otherwise suitable to be donated. Now, you know, the next issue is making sure that if it's donated at a later stage in the 
supply chain that the tax is somehow covered. And I know in this weird limbo, the last two years, you know, there have been some programs that have managed to get some small batches of donations coordinated, you know, to various patients where somehow, you know, money is raised to cover those taxes. I think that's wonderful. We'll probably see more of that. But, you know, long term wise, it's not necessarily the most sustainable or consistent kind of model for the patients. Um, so, you know, this is in some ways a baby step or a bandaid and in other, other ways, very profound. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I think as we've talked about before too, it's really going to come down to us as consumers, you know, supporting brands that we know consistently provide compassionate care donations, whether they're cultivators or manufacturers or, you know, distributors, retail, and, um, also, you know, asking when you're at, at your, you know, dispensary who, who supports compassion and, and keeping that, you know, is something that's important as a, as a consumer. But, you know, beyond that, um, I still think that we're, we're facing some, some hurdles. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and for listeners that aren't aware of this, cannabis companies cannot actually, um, for their taxes, they can't write off donations. There are a lot of write-offs that this industry doesn't enjoy that other businesses do. So, they're paying, we're paying much more in taxes, which also makes it very difficult. So even when um, cultivators or producers will be donating product, they may not be getting taxed, excise tax. And if they earmark their products for compassion before they, they go to market, they won't get the cultivation tax. But they're also not going to be able to do a write-off of a charitable donation. And I think, you know, one one thing that I'm curious to hear you speak more about. I know it's something that people have have worked on at different points. Is is getting the local tax alleviated? Because certainly, if we total up the cultivation tax, excise tax, and then the local tax, sometimes you're looking at a compound tax rate of you know forty percent or more. I know here in Oakland, where we are right now, there's a ten percent local tax, mm-hmm. um, and that's going to attach regardless of whether it's going for a donation or whether it's going for you know a commercial sale. Unfortunately, yeah, that's something that we're really going to have to talk more about. Um, I I just got the compassion seat for the oversight committee for San Francisco, so I'm hoping to do a lot of work around that. And when we had that um, gross receipts tax on the ballot the other year, um, prior to that, having the conversation with some members of the board of supervisors, I was really lowballing it. I was like, "How about zero to two percent?" And they're like, zero is <laughs> not a tax, Sarah." I was like. Bingo. It's it's not. Um, But we, you know, we're going to be, I believe it's next fall that starts to come into play for us. So like Berkeley and Oakland, we'll have additional taxes. And we really need to look, give a good hard look at that and see what that's serving. Because one, on the ballot, they attached it to other things that people felt really strongly about that they wanted to pass. Um, so I thought that that was a really interesting way of sneaking something through. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we really need to be more cognizant of the effects because a lot of times local and state governments are still in the mindset of we're in the midst of a green rush. And I've said it before, I'll say it again, the green rush is over. The minute that we created a foundation and ways of doing things in the illicit market, we we lowered the ability to actually be able to make money. 
And that's not to say that that's a bad thing because we do need to have um, rules, regulations, you know, all these policies in place to have a healthy, thriving market. But we are overtaxing and we've, we seem to earmark money for all these different things. But what we forget is that if there's, if there's no way for the industry to thrive, there, there is no income for local and state authorities. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I applaud your work, you know, on the task force before, um, you know, because I know that the task force did actually spend some time making very discreet and specific, uh, compassionate care, um, recommendations. And so, you know, I, I'm looking forward to seeing this next step with the commission and, you know, whether or not the commission takes up some of those recommendations, hopefully with you on the compassion seat, you know, there's more of a likelihood. Um, but I, I do really hope that San Francisco as a municipality, you know, as a city and a county continues to lead and to preserve its legacy as, you know, the epicenter in addition to other spots in the Bay Area and Santa Cruz of being legacy compassion. Yeah, I, I hope so too. Um, we have a lot of work to do even outside of cannabis to be serving our communities that are low to no income, quite honestly. Um, I think in the world, the way it is now, and especially in affluent cities like San Francisco, it's becoming more and more of like a crime to be poor. Definitely, definitely. And it's just, you know, in the face of that too, seeing the relief that, you know, some of the people, our brothers and sisters on the street are able to get when they're able to access donations as well, because that's a whole population and subset that have even more challenges embedded in their, their daily struggle. Um, But you're right. I mean, we're, we're really looking at it from a standpoint of cannabis becoming more and more for those who have and less and less for those that do not have. So, you know, I, I hope that this, this, this victory is the the first, hopefully, and, and many others that we can reinforce what was available before this framework came into place and, and ultimately get to a place where we can expand it more. Yeah, I, I, I believe that we need to we need to have some more richer discussions around this, around accessibility. Um, I think that a lot of what we've been doing with cannabis with legalization has been more about looking at how, when we're normalizing it, we're, we're saying, how are we going to appeal to the affluent? How are we going to make this sexy through marketing and packaging? And we're missing out on a really unique opportunity um, to create a more compassionate and wholesome way of doing business. Just as we led the way with the tech boom as far as how business is run, you'll notice people don't go to work in suits anymore. You know, um, People work from home. There are other benefits or different ways that we look at work-life balance, although sometimes with tech it seems like the life balance part has been taken out of it. Um, but we could do something very different. We could look at how do we, how do we hold people up, creating opportunities for people to have abundance, to being able to have, it, it's entirely possible to make a profit and help other people. Um, how can we be more community oriented and actually have that as part of our mission statement 
for operating. Um, we we just we have so much that needs to come into play, and there's a lot of forgetting this because people are struggling to survive. And there's also now that it's safer to maintain a space in the cannabis space. We're also seeing uh, bad players that are that are fueled by greed. And you know we we're in a time with the Me Too movement that we're still seeing a lot of um, sexism and a lot of objectivism and objectification. I mean, not objectivism, two different things. But, um, you know, that I think we have a lot of work to do to not create an unhealthy culture around cannabis. Um, and I really, it, it disturbs me because when I first started working in cannabis, it was very different. It was almost everybody who I worked with wanted to donate for the patients. It was mm -hmm. always for the patients. That was what we were about. People were able to feed their families and pay their rent, and farmers actually got paid a decent amount to cultivate, and we were able to help our patients. So how do we create this cycle of abundance in an industry? Um, I think it's, it's, it's difficult because you have to have a lot of people who are, who are willing to actually step in that realm and commit to that. Um, and you know, it's, it's, and it's not just the old timers that are doing that. There are some really passionate people that want to do a lot of good that are recently in the industry. Sure. So how do we, how do we find each other and make this a reality? Yeah, that's a great generative question, I think, to, to operate from. Um, and so, you know, part of, I think, finding that balance is is really taking the spotlight and shining on you know the family farmers that did support patients in the last um setup so to speak it you know as much as the state and and others will vilify the way that you know 215 worked there there really was an implicit at least for for some traditional farmers um you know always a give back when possible or a set aside of some of what was grown for the people that are the most in need or the most, um, sick. And, and yeah, I think you're, I, I don't know what the magic bullet is, you know, to incorporate this new consumer base and also the, the consumer businesses, the, you know, these new licensed businesses. Um, but to the extent that, you know, we, um, keep this uh, a practice that's real and supported by real numbers and content and commitment to patients, the more that there's a future that we can continue to build on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, um, I th thank you so much for that. I just, I really, I always love talking to you about this <laughs> and, and for those of you who don't know, Anne donated so much time to this project, um, to this movement, um, and countless others did as well. It's the work that we do as advocates and activists, we don't get paid for. Uh, we, we donate a lot of time and work and energy and travel. Um, and it's very emotional uh, because these are the people that 
that drive us every day to do what we do. I, I can't tell you how much it means to me to be able to do work that impacts people in a way that I can see. And I, I always joke that, you know, my, I'm not, my work isn't entirely altruistic because I derive great joy from helping other people. And part of it has to do with, I've always kind of been like that because prior to working in this industry, I worked in nonprofit and civil rights, but also as a patient, when I was sick, so many people stepped up to be able to help me. And it's an honor and a privilege to be able to help others. Um, and it's also, it can be very, very hard because it takes a lot out of us because there's there's only so much a person can give and people need so much so it really does take a village and the way that you know our fellow activists and allies have been banding together to make this happen working hard after two years is an enormous victory and we still have a lot to work out um, we still don't know what this is going to look like and although it gives me great joy to be able to tell our patients you haven't been forgotten, I still can't tell them what to expect. And so that's where, you know, we continue our work and it's where uh, people in the community have to step up and be active and let your lawmakers know what your expectations are and what your values are and what you want to see and that you vote. It's huge. That's when, when legalization passed, people came up and said, oh, can we get into the dispensary now? And it's like, well, we need a year to put everything into place because nobody puts together the foundation of a program if it hasn't passed. And, you know, people would get frustrated about, well, how about this? Well, how about that? I don't like the way these are working. It's like, this is, this is going to be your 101 civics lesson. <laughs> things pass, then, thing, then we need to set the stage to actually activate what we're working with. And on top of that, we need to hear back from the public. We need to hear back from voters like you as to how you want to see these programs looking and what you're passionate about. And that's, that's how change happens. Well, Anne, we're we're not quite to the hour mark, and you okay. know we could, we could we could talk three more hours. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Is there is there anything else that you'd like to talk about? I know you've been doing a lot of great work with <clears throat> Appalachians. Yeah, um, I definitely can speak to that. So uh, one thing that you know is embedded in our um, our statutory law right now is the creation of cannabis Appalachian program, uh, which the uh, CDFA, the Food and Ag Department, has been uh, working on in conjunction with um, different farmer groups and other industry groups that were able to participate on the um, Appalachian Working Group earlier this year. And we have been told that at some point this fall there will actually be a packet that the CDFA issues that will you know, set forth some of the basic nuts and bolts and proposals for what this program would look like. But ultimately what, what I'm talking about is um, small former farmers in, you know, historical cultivation regions that are, you know, cultivating out in the sun, sometimes in native soil. Um, that's one issue that's up for grabs, um, you know, and cultivating cannabis uh, in such a way that, you know, it, the, the ultimate product uh, is reflective of the terroir and reflective of, reflective of the, the, um, micro or the, the biome, the biosphere where it grows, you know, um, some of the places we're talking about are sub regions of Mendocino, Big Sur, Humboldt, 
um, where you have uh, the history of cultivation, longstanding, um, a culture, the human intervention, um, you know, with these natural elements, um, being able to create cannabis that really will command um, a different kind of value from the consumer, much like, you know, the way that wines um, and, and the whole wine industry developed here in California um, under the um, viticulture, the AVA uh laws here. So, you know, it's a really exciting and very nerdy, um, uh, area. And, uh, traditionally some of the farmers that will benefit from cannabis appellations are actually the farmers that have, you know, oftentimes been the most active on the compassion front. So, you know, just seeing even over the last two years, some of the cultivators that have still remained committed to compassion, even no matter how modest are, you know, these, the same farmer, these same farmer groups that are, you know, often practicing regenerative agriculture that have, you know, you know, very important genetics, um, that have been, you know, cultivating specific strains and cultivars that have, um, unique properties and cannabinoid profiles, um, for patients, you know, a lot, not high THC cannabis, but cannabis that has, you know, specific properties or known properties that are good for, you know, certain conditions. Um, so, you know, this is, this has been my focus for the last year. I'm uh, co-chairing a subcommittee. We're putting together a symposium at UC Berkeley School of Law and Haas School of Business around cannabis appellations. And we'll have some of the farmers, um, the regulators, and also, you know, the business case for appellations um, presented, so to speak. And until then, you know, we can look and see that there'll probably be some really interesting developments. Um, the symposium is slated to be in April of next year. And, you know, I've been told and have read throughout that um, right now it's a seller's market. So I really hope that, you know, these legacy farmers that we're talking about that have historically donated to our, you know, um, vulnerable populations here in California will be, um, even if it's just for the short term winners and, you know, have a really good experience this this harvest cycle and, and be well positioned both to donate and also to start working on their Appalachian petitions so that we can secure a foothold for those particular farmers in these historical regions and, and help protect their, their cannabis, the market for their cannabis, their craft and for the greater community, including the patients. That's awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm also really excited once this, this starts to get going to hear, um, some of you know our consumers that tend to get like a little more nerdy and into it. They're <laughs> going to start talking about terroir and things like that. And and these th- with the Appalachians are these primarily outdoor? They're sun-grown farms. So that's actually part of what we're looking at. Um, you know, the CDFA hasn't uh, formalized anything yet, but has been working around the statutory language of you know looking at uh, standards, practices, and varietals and what this Appalachian system could ultimately end up um, being. Because it could be, for example, something more like the French system, the AOC model um, with wine, which is much deeper than just which geographic region and which um, and whether that geographic region has some kind of um, ability to produce a certain craft uh, product, and much more so going into the conditions that the farmer works with and the specific science and even, you know, commitment. There's a, a whole open question about whether or not you should commit to specific cultivars as well um, or not uh, because of climate change, among other things. But, um, 
Yeah, I think that, you know, the beneficiaries of this program more than likely will be folks that are cultivating um, in the full sun. There may be some movement for those working in, um, you know, partial, you know, with light depth and, you know, some use of greenhouses. But I think if we're talking about 100% indoor cultivation, I'm I'm not sure that's really a viable model because there's not so much of a connection between the land and the, the geographical and the natural conditions and what is ultimately being created, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that makes sense. And I think, you know, with that, there's definitely all sorts of intellectual property challenges because, you know, the ultimate goal is to create a system in which an appellation here in the U.S., appellation being not the mountain chain, but like an appeal, because what you do is you you put together a petition or an appeal to the regulator and you say, you know, this is the region and, you know, potentially some of these things that are going to be in the packet, we don't know yet, you know, whether it's the requirement that um, you be able to prove that there's a connection between the geographical characteristics and what you ultimately farm there, right? Um, This is all up for grabs, but the products could result in it being a framework that is internationally recognized, not just for cannabis here in California, but for cannabis frameworks, Appalachian frameworks throughout the world. There are definitely some challenges along the way, including whether or not we are signatories to certain kinds of treaties and harmonization of pre-existing intellectual property rights, which is like way beyond this show or even one symposium. But, you know, it's it's a fascinating area to, to work in uh, or to, you know, speculate about because, again, we don't have the framework yet. But, you know, it, it very much could be... Um, both the creation of a new market and the support of something old, yeah. a lot like compassion. And also at the same time, um, being deeply tied to, um, you know, the communities, the ecosystems and, um, the very plant itself that makes California cannabis, particularly cannabis that's grown in these regions so special and unique and something that for the average consumer and patient commands, um, a different kind of respect and a different value to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it, it, I'm just so excited about that. Also, just thinking about the future of cannabis when we can do um, commerce between states and between countries. Right. That's going to be fascinating. Definitely. And, it, it, the, you know, alongside California's movement to look into and, and to create this Appalachian framework, I know that there's a lot of interest in Oregon and um, also in Washington state as well. And those are, you know, additional regions where you have legacy farmers growing in these in these um, methods, in these specific geographical regions that have unique characteristics that really affect the, the plant and the way that it um, expresses itself. And I think you're right to, to spot, you know, interstate commerce. I, that's not some slam dunk. That's its own thicket of issues. <laughs> yes. But, you know, when we talk about like regions that historically are known to grow a very high quality cannabis that's beneficial to people there, we, we know those regions to, to do that. And, and hopefully in the long future, maybe not the immediate one, we'll able to figure out a way so that, you know, consumers throughout the world can access it but until then i'm i'm hopeful for california here yeah i am i am too and and i it's it's always amazing like how excited people get when they get to find out where their cannabis actually comes from you know it's like 
when I, you know, tell them that, you know, we get stuff from, you know, the Central Valley all the way up north in, you know, in our dispensary. And, um, you know, there are certain cultivators that are actually even within San Francisco. And I'll tell people, yeah, no, I was grown here in San Francisco. And they're like, oh, wow. Or, <laughs> you know, Sonoma County or, you know, wherever it is. And it's people like to know where, you know, whatever they're ingesting, where it comes from. Yeah, I, you know, in the bigger picture, smaller farmers are really hurting in in our country and in our state, and and you know, for the proponents of cannabis appellations, there's definitely a hope that you know, if this framework is set up right, that it can really benefit small farmers in general. Because as we're seeing in Mendocino and Humboldt and some other regions, in order to just um, keep your small farm, you know, the lights on and 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 able to um, you know move forward. Farmers are often not just cultivating cannabis, but also, you know, other um, uh, slow food, organic produce, regenerative um, practices that very much benefit from Appalachians as well. Even if it's not, you know, the immediate an Appalachian on a jar of strawberry jam, because that's not what I'm talking about. But certainly like a regreening and a support for these small farmers and a marketplace for them and, and hopefully you know, with that, maybe uh, we know that, for example, tourism stands to benefit the wine industry could as well, or there's a cross fertilization. And certainly, um, you know, different regions that have have these stakeholders that could benefit, you know, very much will have all sorts of secondary um, benefits to a cannabis appellation system. And, you know, we can look to you know, wine in Europe, um, the way that tequila is organized in Mexico. Um, you know, you can, as a consumer, pull up a farm, look up, you know, what kind of, um, what kind of plants are being grown, um, you know, mezcal or what have you. And, and in these traditional areas in Mexico and go, you know, find that farm straight to the farm or source it somewhere else. And it's, we can't quite do that with cannabis yet. Um, but I think that, the desire is out there for sure. There's a lot more literacy that's happening. And, you know, I think it's definitely something that's very complementary with just our own consciousness around um, food, local food, slow food. Um, and, you know, it's while we started out the conversation around, you know, patient need and medicine, you know, there's there's a real need for, you know, this this beyond just the immediate benefits of cannabis appellations to you know supporting the the communities and the regions that have had these um that have had these uh communities you know cultivating cannabis for several decades now so you know it's none of this is a uh, um is easier straightforward but i think it does present some um unique challenges, um, both from a legal standpoint and also, you know, a policy one. And, you know, the people that are behind it certainly are, you know, are unsung heroes in these regions now, you know, that are somehow able to, you know, stay in balance um, while we've got this behemoth regulatory framework that's getting worked out. And also, you know, we've got these wildfires and so many other constraints that are like apart from the what what we're talking about in the first instance which is growing cannabis right yeah we've got so many so many 
people in the industry who have gotten relocated. Um, it's going to impact crops this year yet again. Right. Um, and you know, there's, there's no insurance for those crops. Um, and going just back to the Appalachians, it's like the small farmers, what they grow is, is amazing. It's some of the most beautiful, um, flavorful cannabis that you can come across. And it's something that I've been very deeply missing since we've been in legalization because we've, we've lost so many of those amazing farmers and, you know, at, at the risk of sounding hippy dippy, like it has to do with, you know, the care and love that comes in that cultivation, the, <clears throat> the energetic component that comes into it. And you can definitely tell the difference between something that was grown with care and something that was grown in a large indoor grow. For sure. Even just uh, speaking with some of the farmers, I, there's like one particular farmer I'm thinking of up in Trinity where they have, a, you know, beautiful regenerative ag practice and, you know, have even published a book around it and seeing how basic some of this is like, if you're focused on supporting pollinators and, you know, other beneficial plants that, you know, will help your overall ecosystem of your farm, of course, you're going to have a different terpene profile. Of course, you're probably going to have some terpenes and other things show up that wouldn't show up if you grew indoors without those beneficials. And, you know, so it's just kind of like this win-win, I think. It's, I don't know how long it will take and, and you know, to what extent more will need um, so much agency support. Um, but I do know that at the end of the day, like you said, the cannabis that's produced is impeccable and it's just almost like a different plant altogether. Yeah. And, and, you know, for the farms that can make it and that have made it all the more reason why we need to celebrate the end product because it is so different from mass produced cannabis. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's, it's something that had I known before what I know now, I would have really relished a lot of the flowers that I had before legalization because we were so spoiled. We had such beautiful, we had such beautiful things. (laughs) <laughs> that's yeah that's definitely I think the takeaway when you talk to anyone involved in cultivation whether it's you know in some of the larger scale productions or you know these these smaller farms that we've been talking about is just the fact that in order to stay alive you know in the regulated market it means you know growing less cultivars less specialized cultivars and maybe not having the abundance and variety that existed before um you know the market adjusted I mean it hands down, I'm sure this is something you cover in almost every show, the emphasis right now on the cannabis plant from a consumer standpoint is THC and THC alone. And that's really, you know, unfortunate because it affects so much else. And and we know that people are growing less cultivars that have these more complex profiles and also that they're just growing less cultivars in general, going from, you know, 40 to eight. Right. Um, Well, I think that's where education comes into play too, because when people come in just looking for the highest THC content or a certain THC content, thinking that it's going to guarantee them a certain feel, and it's, it's not that. And when people come in and, you know, they're saying it doesn't feel the way it used to, it's like, well, yeah, there's been changes because we have a lot of high octane THC products that are coming out in flowers, maybe not in edibles because we've taken that back, 
But then we did the exact opposite with our flowers. And I really think there needs to be a lot more thoughtfulness about it. And the two things that I always think about when I look at, you know, cannabis is, you know, the the heart, which covers both both sides, the producers and our patients, and then the artistry that comes into it. Because there is a certain type of craftsperson that makes an amazing plant and cultivates these cultivars of plants. They create them. Um, it's not something that can you. It's 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 not Franken food. Yeah, for sure. And and the things that are the most effective uh, may not, at least initially, seem sexy. But you know, when you take it apart, because that's really a question with cannabis appellations. People say over and over, "Well, can you prove this?" Yeah. And is it really true the cannabis is different? And does it really help patients differently if, you know, it's grown in this condition? And and I think that we're going to start to see some real science on that. I know yeah. that it already does exist to an extent. We'll see it at the symposium. But, um, yeah, the future of, of the cannabis plant and how it is cultivated, who it serves, what it looks like, it's so, so much in transition still. Yeah. But so glad that there are you know, groups of people that have been doing this work for a very long time. You know, I can, since we're here now, definitely, you know, shout outs um, in terms of Appalachian work, the Mendocino Appalachians Project, which is now becoming the Origins Council. Um, Janine Coleman has done just beautiful work. She'll be part of the symposium, a real visionary. Um, and also, you know, um, so many of the farmer groups that participated in the CDFA working group, um, some of the trade associations like the Humboldt County Growers Association, the HCGA. Um, I'm trying to think the Big Sur Farmers Association, which I've done some work with and, you know, was the impetus for me to get involved. And, you know, the individual farmers, too, that are, are committed to this and are working together both, you know, collectively in their communities and I've even met some cultivators that are working on like subregion appellations, you know, that have been trying to kind of figure out w how things are going to land and how to organize themselves in advance of whatever the state puts out. And, you know, it's in the long term, why I think this is really exciting is, you know, similar in some ways to compassion in the sense that there's something greater than just the monetary value that you associate with whatever this end product is. And for Appalachian, it very much circles around the natural environment, the farmers that are creating, um, you know, this harmonization with the, with, with their cultivation and, you know, with all of the different things that go into craft cannabis in these, um, regions and, you know, understanding that it fundamentally is a, is a different plant at the end of the day, or will command a different kind of respect than just, mass farmed cannabis but you know getting to that point it's going to take some time and the the very things that are exciting about it are also of course you know the challenges because what what this system will ride on at least in part is that we will have something like collective rights where groups um, are able to control and work with an appellation. It doesn't belong to one individual farmer. It will belong to a region. And being able to mediate conflict in that setting and also enforcement, these are new layers before the, you know, beyond even the should we have cannabis appellations and what does it look like yeah. that we're going to have to address. So 
again, another, another, uh, forum or another, you know, area where there's a lot more that needs to be done, but so exciting that, you know, the farmers themselves and, you know, some of the, um, nonprofit groups also are already doing the work. And I just commend our agency as well for committing, you know, to doing this work and engaging the stakeholders in it. It's one of the first times, you know, beyond compassion where I've seen that. And I think every time agencies do that, we're, you know, on a trajectory towards success and, you know, uh, working together as opposed to uh, creating systems that maybe, you know, never got the input in the first place from the folks that will actually be having to, you know, work within those constraints and those regulations and those rules. Yeah. Oh, I thank you for all your work on that. I, I just really feel like in the future we're, more people are going to be reflecting on, you know, knowing where you're getting your cannabis, that it's a full spectrum product because we're, we're more and more research is pointing towards that's actually what creates the most benefit for people and creates balance in the body. I know that there's been some revisiting of, you know, synthetic cannabinoids or when we're dealing with isolates, just isolating cannabinoids. And I really hope that that starts to dwindle because, you know, it really is about the synchronicity of how everything works together and, you know, and, and, and same with policy, mm-hmm. how everything works together. And thanks for being on here today. Um, you know, I know that you're busy with a lot of projects, but you do have a really rich practice. So if anyone wants to get a hold of you, what would be the best way for them to contact you? Um, you can either reach out to me by way of um, my email address, um, a kelson, K-E-L-S-O-N-E-S-Q at gmail.com. That's the easiest way to email me or Anne at McAllisterGarfield.com. Um and uh, you can also check out my bio at McAllister's website. And very, very much a pleasure and um, it's just such an honor to be able to talk with you here about those two different um, pieces of work that I'm working on. So thanks. Oh, thank you. And thank you, everybody, for hanging out with me and Ann Kelson today. I hope that you got as much out of it as I did. Um, check out the Appalachians Projects. Um, do a little Googling yourself. Um, please support Compassion in whatever state you're in. If they're putting together new laws, don't forget the patients. They're what brought us here. And many times it's us or someone we love who's in that space. So approach, approach policy with love. Thanks again. We'll see you next month. And check out, if you haven't checked out the first four episodes, please do. This is Sarah signing off for today, and have a wonderful week. 